Welcome to the podcast ministry of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. It is our hope to proclaim the historic faith and the dazzling grace of Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. This is Baptism of Our Lord Sunday, and I think it's very fitting that we're having two baptisms of our own uh, within our service together. Uh, Baptism, as you may know, is an entrance rite. Uh, It's an entrance rite into the church, into the visible body of Christ on earth. And I think entrance rites or ceremonies uh, that, that suggest a new beginning can very much define or redefine the direction of our lives. Uh, for example, if, if you are lucky enough and hereditarily oriented enough to become the king or queen of England, uh, there will be a ceremony, a very ornate ceremony, in which you are anointed with oil and set aside for the monarchy. If you are unfortunate enough to become president of the United States, uh, you will be handed a Bible and sworn into office. And that ceremony suggests that you will now serve a higher good, or at least ought to. If you are elected Pope, and at least somebody in this room will be at some point, um, if you're elected, I don't know what that meant, Pope, um, you will be taken into a room, you will don white vestments, and that room will actually be called the Room of Tears, which suggests something about your future career of choice. Um, But if you are married happened yesterday in this very room. You will exchange rings and make vows, and at that ceremony, your life is about to change. Uh, You will no longer just be yourself and responsible for yourself. You will be conjoined to another till death parts you. Um, Entrance rites can be very powerful things, can tilt us in new directions, can uh, open life to new possibilities, and Jesus Christ himself experienced an entrance rite. He was baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John, and it affected him so deeply that he decided when he was going to send out his own disciples that he would give them the same charge, that they would now be baptizers, and that they would baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that that baptism, that entrance rite, that watery aquatic ritual would set people upon a new kind of course in their lives. And baptism means many, many things. Uh, It's an image of cleansing from sin, but it's also uh, a way of mirroring the last week of Jesus's life, particularly his death and his resurrection. When we are put under the water, we're reminded of Jesus's death and then his burial going underground, if you will. And then Um, When we're brought out of the water, we are reminded as we spring from that water of His physical, historical resurrection. Um, And so, this is an entrance rite that we have that defines the Christian life. I'm going to repeat this slogan several times in the sermon in case we don't catch it the first time, but one of the meanings of baptism is that we die to what is deadly and live to what is lively. In baptism, we die to what is deadly and we live to what is lively. 
Now, this is an atypical sermon tonight because I'm not going to be speaking about a biblical passage. I'm actually going to be talking about the baptismal profession of faith or the baptismal covenant that's found on page 6 in your bulletin. So please open up to page 6 because I'd like to dig through this very biblically rich material with you so that we know two things. One, what's happening today when we baptize people. Two, what your own baptism means for you, what ramifications it has in your present and future experience. Um, now, you'll notice on the top of page six, these are, the, again, the baptismal promises or profession of faith, sometimes called a baptismal covenant, that it's broken down into two sections with a prayer in between. The first section is three rejections or renunciations, and the second section is three affirmations. And I'd like to unpack them together with you. Um, In fact, I'm going to ask you the baptismal questions, and I want you to make the responses, right? So we'll make this a little bit liturgical up here. Um, So the first section has to do with renunciations. We're renouncing things. We are dying to what is deadly. By the way, this is why in the early church, many of the baptismal pools that they have excavated Uh, over the years, are in the shape of coffins. They used to fill these empty coffin structures with water and dunk people in them as a way to remind them that there's something about their old selves that has died in this water. Um, So here's the first question, and you can respond to it liturgically. Do you renounce the devil and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Good. Now, to Cormac McCarthy. You may remember that in Cormac McCarthy's film, No Country for Old Men, uh, Sheriff Bell was played by Tommy Lee Jones, rather convincingly, by the way. And he, in the midst of his um, drug-ridden, violent town in western Texas, gives this little vernacular speech about Satan. It's fascinating. He says, somebody at breakfast the other morning asked me if I believed in Satan. I had to think about that. I guess as a boy I did. In my middle years, my belief had waned somewhat. But now I'm starting to lean back the old way. Satan explains a lot of things that otherwise don't have no explanation. Uh, He agrees with Christian orthodoxy in the film. Here's what I mean. We believe that people are deeply troubled, that all of us have broken hearts, intellects, psychology, perception of the world. But we also believe in an external antagonism of sorts, an aggressive, malevolent force that Scripture describes in various ways as a snake, as a dragon, as a leviathan, as a sea monster, uh, as a lion. But an aggressive agency that exists external to us, that seeks to tear us down and that wars against us. Jesus, in fact, warred against him in the wilderness as he was tempted to abandon his vocation. And Jesus casts out this evil presence from people who are possessed. And so we as Christians are people with a supernatural framework. Uh, We believe in what St. Paul calls principalities and powers, dynamics that do exist within our world that have a spiritual quality to them that transcend bad or aberrant psychology. We believe in bad or aberrant psychology. We just think there's sometimes more going on than just that. 
So we believe in a malevolent force that we renounce. Then there's the second question. Do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Okay, so we are now moving from the satanic realm into the world that we are more familiar with. By the way, when it asks if you renounce this world, it doesn't mean God's good creation, right? It doesn't mean the Grand Canyon and sunsets and hot fudge sundays. Instead, it means this world, at least the infected parts of this world, which have uh, a a quality of devolving your person, right? Things that actually bring dehumanization into human experience. Um, the infection of sin within all of creation. Now, uh, Eugene Peterson, the famous Bible translator and commentator and theologian, writes this about the world. Here's what he writes. The world is an atmosphere. The world is a mood. It is nearly as hard for us to recognize the world's temptations as it is for a fish to discover impurities in the water. There's just this sense, this feeling that things are not right, that the environment is not whole. But the vexation often eludes analysis. This spiritual atmosphere in which we live erodes faith, dissipates hope, and corrupts love. But it is hard to put a finger on exactly what is wrong. Well, that's the world. The world subtly over time, but certainly more aggressively as it rolls on over time, the world manifests itself in manipulated relationships, in companies that prefer profit to integrity, in churches that cover up abuse, in militias who make child soldiers, in bullying, in commercialism, in a culture that cheapens life or deforms love. That is the world. It's the world. And notice this, this uh, renunciation includes uh, the bait that is often used by the world. It says, do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world? In other words, it's what the devil did in Eden, right? It's the, why don't you have a bite of this particular fruit? Because if you do, you will know and see and feel as God does. Remember, Satan will never come to you and, and tell you, you know, I have a perfect plan to make your life as miserable as possible and for you to hate every moment of your existence. Because you're, like, you're not the brightest bulb in the batch, and neither am I, but we're bright enough to say, yeah, that's stupid, and I don't want any part of that. Instead, what the devil does is, is promise you um, the end of your vexation. If you just walk this way, and do this little thing and compromise a little bit, you can be much, much happier than you are right now. I promise you, no tears, euphoria, freedom, true liberation of the soul. Um, so we are to reject those things, to reject the poppy field before the city of Oz. Right? And then there's the third renunciation. Do you renounce the sinful desires of the flesh that draw you from the love of God? Now, this is a very important point because we moved from Satan out there to the, to the world out there to the flesh in here. The flesh is not just a reference to your skin. It means anything connected to the old era of sin, including your veritable person. 
And this is enormously important because Christianity is a religion of self-responsibility. We are a religion of self-responsibility rather than blame. Blaming is in. It's everywhere right now. Um, I, I just, I hear it in myself. I hear it in many people that I meet with. But blaming everybody else and everything else for my current problems. And here's what's hard about that. Part of it is, of course, true that we are victims of the perpetration of other people. And I'm not discounting that for a second, nor the deformation that ripples out from those aggressive acts against us. That's all true. Nevertheless, we are not only victims. We are people who can perpetrate in various ways ourselves. Um, it is, in other words, not just your ex-husband, not just your ex-wife, not just your ex-girlfriend or boyfriend, not just your parents, not just the government, not just the media. Uh, uh, it's you. It's me. It's us. Um, to use my often overused phrase, we are the golden thread that connects all our problems and the, the difficult thing about this is that it means that Solzhenitsyn in all of his dark brilliance was right, that the dividing line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Uh, sometimes it's funny, when I hear people bashing other churches before they come to grace, uh, I talk, I've talked, to this, uh, uh, talked about this with David at times, it's, I always worry. When I hear somebody say, yeah, went to this church, didn't like it, went to that, another church before that one, didn't like it either, and they list a litany of churches they hate. I'm like, I wonder when we'll be on the list, because it will happen. It will, it, no, it will, because if you, if you have a fault-finding nature that, that finds a reason to hate everything, you'll find, believe me, if you don't have a reason yet, I'll give you one after the service. I have a long list, because the thing is, um, the, if there's a golden thread to all your complaints, and I'm not speaking of anybody here, but people that are outside this building, if there's a golden thread of all the complaints, it's you, the complainer. Maybe it's a fault-finding mechanism within. Do you remember that, uh, that odd children's poem about the crooked man who walked a crooked mile, who did all the crooked stuff? Well, the whole point of the poem is that he's the one who's crooked in perceiving the world crookedly. Not everything else was crooked. It's that person. Um, and so what this vow says is, no, I'm not going to blame everybody else. I'm not going to blame my ex. I'm not going to blame my family. I'm going to start looking at my own life and, and taking some ownership over my own problems. And the fact that, yeah, I spend way too much money. Or, yeah, I gossip all the time. Or I'm maligned. Or I'm hypercritical. Or I'm, I'm way too lusty. Or I'm just I'm a bundle of impulses. It's me. And maybe I was set up for it. Who cares? At some point, I'm going to have to own this stuff. It's the only way you get better psychologically is to own your own stuff and not blame other people. And so we take, we take ownership in this vow. We renounce the sinful desires within us, within our flesh. And that way we stop being a victim. By the way, don't just be a victim. It's so dehumanizing to just be a victim. Be a person who owns things. That's when you have a formidability. That's when you become fully human. That's when you become relatable and connectable, when you take ownership in humility of your own problems, identifying ourselves as complicit. So, right in this beginning section, there are three renunciations, the devil, the world, 
and the, the sinful flesh. So right from the start, Christianity says something offensive to the old Adamic ears. And it says this, some things just have to die. Put another way, God loves us enough to kill. What I mean by that? Kill sin before it kills us. Kill the guilt and power of sin before it does its ultimate work of damage. Some of you know the name Justin Terry. He's the former dean and president of Trinity Seminary where I went, uh, where David went, where Chad went. Uh, Dawn escaped it, but <laughs> the rest of us went there, and we uh, had a great time. Uh, but the dean uh, was actually in an airport uh, one day and was very tired, but this very sweet British lady sat next to him, and he was talking to her, and the more he talked with her, the less sweet she seemed. Eventually, she asked what he did for a living. He said that he was the dean of a seminary, didn't know what that was, described the role, and said, oh, you're one of those religious types. What does that mean to you? Well, he explained what Christianity was all about. Strangely and oddly enough, she was very open to the message, and at the end said, well, how can this be real for me? And he said, do you want that? She said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't we pray together? And they did, and she really received Christ in a very deep way. But afterwards, she said, I have a difficulty with this now. Until this point, everyone has always known me, and evidently this was quite an epitaph, as Mary the Angry Lady. <laughs> My former dean said, oh, that's interesting. that's interesting. And she said, but I guess after experiencing this, I can't really be angry, marry the angry lady anymore. And she said, but you know, the angry lady part of me never helped me very much anyway. What is that? The Holy Spirit, right? Because that kind of wisdom and that insight and that self-reflection means that something is dying and has got to die, and isn't that great? When God robs something from you, it's the best thing ever. Now, you may hate it. It may feel like, you know, hell in a handbasket. But when it's done, a few months later, you're thinking, how, how was I even alive before when I was having this problem? Because it, it was possessing too much of me and, and, and made me leaden and dead inside. And now I can finally breathe a little. I'm in a wider place now. So when God robs you of something or kills something in you, that is his grace unto you. So we renounce these things. And then we start affirming things. There's not only negativity in the vows, there's positivity. Not only death, but resurrection. Not only renunciations, but affirmations. Uh, we die to things worth dying to. We live for things worth living to. So the first one is this. Notice the word turn. And please fulfill your part. Do you turn to Jesus Christ and confess him as your Lord and Savior? Notice the word turn, that's a word that means repent. So do you turn away from all the negativity that we've just renounced and now turn toward another person? We call Jesus two things, Savior and Lord. Savior means that, or implies, that human nature is tyrannized by evil without and within, and we need to be rescued, not just helped. This, of course, takes the shape of the cross on, upon which Jesus offers an atonement for human sin and then raises later. Uh, so he saves us from sin and death. We also call him Lord. What does this mean? He is at the top of the interpretive pyramid of all existence. Jesus is at the top, the hermeneutical pyramid of all of life, meaning the highest authority in, in human experience is not, in fact, Mark Zuckerberg or Donald Trump 
or AOC, or an academy, or family values, or taking back our country, whatever that means, or your mother, or your father, or your career, or Pentecostalism, or Anglicanism, who cares? It's Jesus. Jesus is at the top of life's hermeneutical pyramid. That means everything else is interpreted by and judged by um, and hopefully absolved by Jesus, the one at the top of the thing. It means that you are not your own master, best thing ever, because you're not great at this, because I meet with you too frequently. Um, like, I know, yeah, like, and I'm not blaming you. I'm terrible at it too, but isn't that great? You don't have to be in charge. Marvelous to concede ground to the one who actually is in charge and does it better. So we turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Second vow, do you joyfully receive the Christian faith as revealed in the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments? What does this mean? Here's what it means. Christianity is a religion not founded upon a feeling or a hunch or a subjective sense of your own zen or inner love. Instead, it's founded upon a Christ who is revealed in a book. Uh, he's predicted in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament, and thus written revelation in law and gospel governs our lives. Uh, what this vow means is that we submit to a story. You submit to a story. I submit to a story. By the way, everybody in this room, whether you're a Christian or not, submits to a story. Lots of stories out there, too. There's the progress story, where we accept every cultural or technological development as a necessary good. There's stories of power, we, where we believe that uh, a favorite ideological champion will ascend to a place of authority, and then they'll fix the world. Christians keep falling for this in America, by the way. Um, there's stories of success where life is about endless self-recognition um, and advancement, where we are paid the currency of adoration and respect from everybody else. Stories of fulfillment, that life is about achieving an endless sense of zen and comfort, like an existential milk bath. Those are all stories people live into. But baptism gives us another story, maybe I could say the real story. Uh, baptism offers us the biblical message, and certainly Holy Scripture unveils to us a story in which the cosmos was made by a powerful, um, providential, benevolent Father. Uh, and we were the pinnacle of that creation, uh, the creational effort. Uh, we, through all sorts of self-involvement, turned satanic, and yet God again and again intervenes until the degree He sends Himself. He comes to us in the form of Jesus Christ to buy us back through his vicarious death and resurrection and will one day return to finish the job. That is the biblical story in a nutshell. And in baptism, we're saying we submit to that. That is the story. It is not the success story. It is not the affirmation story. Uh, it is not the self-actualization story. It is, in fact, that story, that I am a person defined by beauty, by deep uh, uh, co complex self-sabotage, and by gracious redemption that knows no end. And I've been claimed by it. That's my story. That's my song. And so we claim to be people of the book. We submit to the Holy Scriptures as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. Um, and now the last vow. Will you obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in them all the days of your life? Notice the different ending on that one, for good reason, right? What is this vow saying? Um, that we wish 
to have within our experience, our practical day-to-day experience, more of an alignment with heaven's purposes so that we can lay down our rebellious tendencies and acquiesce to that which is best that is revealed by God. That our aims, our goals, our methods would be redefined by heaven. This is why the third step in AA is so powerful that we will turn our lives and our wills over to our higher power meaning that we begin to distrust our impulses and compulsions and trust the impulses and compulsions of Jesus of Nazareth, seeing that he has embodied the way of life and that we would be better off if we simply gave up and trusted in him. So Christians are people of distrust regarding our own selves very often, Um, that we are, or we at least ought to be anti-narcissists, seeing that somebody else holds the truth and we bow to that. It's also great wisdom to know that we can't do this on our own. This is why the vow ends, I will the Lord being my helper, because if you say, I want myself, my inner life, my whole life really, to be defined by superior wisdom, that insight, let alone that practice, has to be aided by someone external to you, because as great as you are, you don't actually have the chutzpah to do that on a permanent or consistent basis, but you are connected to a God who over time can refashion and uh, remold you. He has the power. He has the technology. So, friends, this is the entrance right of baptism, or at least the covenant of it, that redefines our identity. In it, we die to what is deadly, and we live to what is lively. This was beautifully uh, illustrated in the film Beckett. You may remember that film made, I believe, in the late 50s, in which Thomas a. Beckett, uh, an ancient pre-medieval uh, a, a playboy. Uh, he was sort of an atheist as a deacon. It was funny. Um, but he was best friends with the king at the time. But the king was so uh, happy with him as a friend, but also thought he would be a good political ally, that the king, and this is all true, made him the Archbishop of Canterbury, the most powerful prelate in all of England, and gave him all the power over the Church of England, thinking that he made a good political decision this way. Well, wouldn't you know it, Thomas Becket was converted after he was made the Archbishop of Canterbury and, like, became a real Christian, much to the king's dismay. And again, much to the king's dismay, he just started giving away all the church's goods to the poor, just giving away his own money and his own stuff. And there's a beautiful line in the film where Thomas Becket starts reflecting to himself after living a life of luxury and now a life of near poverty. He, he says to himself, I never thought losing everything could be so wonderfully easy. Because he's so happy that he can just do it. He's the man who died to something and yet lives to something. Not a nihilist, a resurrected man. Right? And that's what baptism is supposed to convey. I want to end with a big question, uh, and it relates to tonight. And um, for some of you, this is not your tradition, and I understand that the church has battled this for a long time, but let me just give you a positive case, uh, whether you're convinced or not, a positive case of why we baptize infants. Why do we baptize people who are too young to assent and understand what baptism even means? Personally, I would love it if St. Paul had written 3 Corinthians. Not just second, but third, in which he says in the last chapter, by the way, you may have a question about when to baptize people, whether they're babies 
or whether they're older. Let me settle this once and for all. Always baptize every baby until Jesus comes again. Or never baptize any babies. What are you thinking? But instead, the Bible doesn't do that. So we are left with inferential arguments, right? So that's great. But if we're to make an inferential argument for why I think this is actually a good idea rather than a bad idea, I'll give it to you. Because some people say, think this is just superstition and tradition run amok. With respect, no, it's not. You may disagree, but that's not the reasoning for it. Here's some of the reasoning for it. The first and most principal reason is this, and it's really the central question. In the Bible, are God-ordained entrance rights into a covenant ever given to infants or children? The answer is an obvious yes. In the Old Testament, the entrance right into the Old Covenant, meaning you belong to God's people, was circumcision. Eight days after a Jewish boy was born, he was brought into the covenant without his personal assent. He was too young to have made it or understood it. Um, and so the Bible has a history of God giving people entrance rights when they were very, very young. That is the biblical paradigm. Point two, Jesus' own disposition toward children was univocally welcoming. He welcomes them when the disciples didn't wish to push them away. In fact, Jesus said to his followers, their simplicity is not only a picture of the kingdom of God, but a picture of how everyone must enter the kingdom of God with the simple trust of a child. Point three, the New Testament describes entire households being baptized. The Greek word is an expansive term that doesn't just usually mean parents, but grandparents, employees, or slaves of the household, and perhaps even children. Perhaps this is why in Peter's famous Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise belongs to you and your children. Also, point four, Paul's letters often include instructions for children, husbands, wives, children, and often employees or slaves. He assumes, he assumes that children are full active members of the body of Christ, brought into the visible church. And lastly, let's call it provenient grace. The baptism of infants sends a message about God, namely that God comes to us before we come to him. God's grace, friends, is assertive and active, not passive. Uh, Tish Warren, a priest within our tradition, writes this about baptism. Baptism is the first word of grace spoken over us by the church. In my tradition, Anglicanism, we baptize infants. Before they cognitively understand the story of Christ, before they can affirm a creed, before they can sit up, use the bathroom, or contribute significantly to the work of the church, grace is spoken over them and they are accepted as part of the body. They are counted as God's people before they have anything to show for themselves. When my daughters were baptized, it was a bold proclamation. Before you know the faith, before you doubt the faith, before you confess the faith, before you sing of the faith, you are the beloved of God, not by your effort, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. We are weak, but he is strong. We are as dying, and yet behold, we live." That's the idea that it portrays about a God who comes to us before we come to him. Now, I want you to know 
that as Anglicans, we do not believe that baptism itself automatically makes someone a regenerate Christian, whether they are baptized as infants or baptized as adults. Uh, if you're interested in more information about this, read the Gorham decision in England from the 1800s, but that's a, that was a boring little factoid. But um, for us, we have to understand that baptism, what's about to happen here? Baptism is a preacher. The sacraments are preachers to you. Baptism displays and proclaims and preaches a Christ who cleanses people from their sin and aligns them with his death and resurrection. And that's what saves. It's the one to whom the sacraments point. It's Christ. They give you Christ. They offer you a picture of Christ. That is what faith clings to. Not baptism itself, but the one that baptism points to. Baptism portrays a Christ who cleanses people from sin and aligns them with his death and resurrection. And baptism proclaims this sin-scrubbing, once-dead, now-risen Christ to us, whether we are children or adults. And when our baptized children who grow up in the church mature and they own those, those baptismal promises for themselves in what we call confirmation, that's when they publicly confirm that baptismal trust. And so baptism gives them and gives us something, rather someone, in whom to believe. John Stott, the famous Anglican evangelical, said that baptism is the billion-dollar blank check that is signed by someone's personal faith. That's what's given to you at your baptism, the promise. And then we believe it. The promise is real and it's yours and you make it your own by believing upon that which baptism points to. So my one plea for every parent, including myself, uh, who, uh, my one plea as a minister to those who baptize children is this. Let's have the integrity when we make our vows to raise our children in this faith and in the church. Let's not see this as, a, as an empty entrance right and then we ignore what we've just pledged. Let's honorably do our best, imperfectly of course, but do our best to teach our children the scriptures, to pray with them, and to raise them within Christian community. May they never know a day when they don't know Jesus Christ and his undying love for them. Um, that's what it means to be baptized and to be the parents and sponsors of baptized children. You know, I think we do a real disservice to people when we claim that people have to have some crisis experience and remember the day they accepted Jesus or they're not real Christians. That's dumb, and it's really psychologically destructive, um, really, really unhelpful. Um, for example, I didn't grow up going to church much, uh, but my grandmother would take me on occasion and prayed with me enough and influenced me enough to help me understand that I belong to Jesus and he belongs to me. I don't remember a time that I didn't know Jesus, and I can't, no, I don't know how to say that. I'm kind of cool with that, right? I always had a sense that he generally didn't hate me and died for my sins and rose again, and that I was going to be okay because of him. And raising our children with that trust and without the paranoia of, have you really meant it? Did you really, really, really mean the sinner's prayer? Maybe you should get born again again, or baptized the fourth time, or walk the aisle the eighth time, and live with endless amounts of law-oriented paranoia until you're sure that you're sure that you're sure. Because when you do that, you put your trust in you, and you do not put your trust in Christ outside of you. So let us not do that to our people. Instead, that's why the sacraments are gifts that come to us outside of us to remind us that the gift has been given to us from the outside. So please, when you see what's happening today, trust in the Christ who's behind it all. 
when we see these baptisms today, we all get a message, not just about these wonderful children, but about our own baptismal identity. Friends, when we see the baptism, we are cleansed, we are declared dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. May God make what baptism promises a reality in their lives and in ours too. Amen. Amen.